How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. What? That was, you held that. Did you like do that little like growly thing as well in there? No, I needed to clear my throat. Oh, sorry. I thought, yeah. oh, wow, that's technique. That's <laughs> wow. pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. Incredible pretty technique. cool. So how have you been, Mark? What's going been, on? Been, been well, Dr. Joe. Been really well. How about yourself? Um, I have been very well as well. Uh, my kids are doing great, which is fantastic. The places where I'm working really are growing and helping so many people. And, uh, and we've got the Dr. Joe show. So what could be what better? else could be better? And so with that in mind, Mark, would you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely. Mark, could you use that same voice for me? Could you give me the full baritone? I, I will. I will. Tonight's guest, Dr. Joe, is Ken Duckworth, MD. Ken is a chief medical officer of the NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI and has worked with NAMI since 2003. Ken is board certified in adult psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry, and is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He was previously acting commissioner and medical director at the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. Ken has worked on an assertive community treatment team at an early psychosis program, at an elementary school, at a health plan, and with people who are unhoused. His passion for his work comes from his loving dad who had bipolar disorder. Ken lives with his family in Boston. Welcome to the show, Ken Duckworth. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Dr. Joe. It's so fun to be here. It is so, so great to have you here. What an honor. There it is, the book, You Are Not Alone. <clears throat> powerful, powerful folks. You gotta, you gotta get this book. but. You know, you've had such an illustrious career, Ken. I mean, doing all sorts of things, helping millions and millions of people. How on earth did you get into psychiatry at all? Yeah, I think the answer to the question, how does a guy become a doctor who sucks at science and can't do calculus? <laughs> and the answer is love. And so, you know, if you were to look at my fifth grade volcanoes, they never had game. I never won a science contest. I was eight years old. I was playing in the basement, making a blanket fort with books on top, which every child has done. I remembered very vividly. My dad was booming upstairs. I heard these very loud noises. I came, walked up the stairs and saw my dad carted away by the police. Mm. This was my first introduction uh, to bipolar disorder with psychosis. We lived in Philadelphia for generations. And uh, now we're in a moving van, you know, in a U-Haul, driving to Michigan, a state where we knew no one. And I thought, does this have something to do with that? As an eight-year-old boy, I'm like, I wonder if that whole police thing and why we're moving to a place that no one knows anyone are related. And of course, the answer is, of course, they're related. And so the only reason I became a psychiatrist was to understand what helped could help my father and what other families could do. Because back in the 70s and 80s, you remember well when you were a star on Zoom, nobody talked about mental health. And my father 
was a loving and generous person, but lived with a lot of shame and isolation. My family never figured out how to communicate. So Joe, one of the reasons I did every job a person could do was to understand this thing. What is mental health recovery? What helps families from every possible angle? An alternative explanation is I couldn't keep a job, uh, right? That's another alternative. So I was part-time for NAMI and, uh, you know, I just wanted to do things. So, you know, who wants to be the commissioner of mental health? Virtually no one. Who wants to work at a health plan? That's not very prestigious. But to me, I saw opportunities to make change or to do things. And all these jobs have been very gratifying. And uh, turns out there's nine medical schools that don't require calculus, Joe. <laughs> Uh, I got into all of them. No, that, so that, that, that that's the up. power of love, not the power of science and math. So if you need quadratic equations, please don't contact me. <laughs> if you're interested in storytelling and what actually helps people, buy NAMI's first book, You Are Not Alone. All the proceeds go to NAMI. The copyright is owned by NAMI. That is incredible. And, and it's been out now for three weeks? Three, three four weeks. Yeah, we made the USA Today bestseller list. That was That was a good day. It's great. That was a good day. Awesome. And, uh, you know, with all your help and support, and, you know, Joe, you helped me improve one of the chapters on co-occurring conditions. And I want to thank you for your help. Uh, I built a team. I'm better team builder than anything else. And so I knew my own strengths. I'm a good team builder. So I created an entire ensemble cast uh, to help me interview 130 people who use their names and tell their stories, what helped them, what helped their families. And then um, it was just a great, it was a great adventure, Joe. And, and that was really a powerful moment, wasn't it? When the people who you were interviewing used their own names and chose not to be anonymous. Yes. And I had a brief moment of panic. I went to Brookline Booksmith. And of course, there's a hundred memoirs, which are interesting, but not practical. And there's a hundred textbooks, which no one reads. I know that because I write chapters for textbooks. No one's ever sent Ken. That chapter on involving the community was fantastic. It changed my life. Maybe one person said, nice chapter, pal. But, you know, I wanted a book that was a combination of both real people. This book could have helped me. So I'd go to Brookline Booksmith, and I'm like, where's my book? We're real people. We've left people who've lived with these conditions and their families out of the equation of who's an expert. I kept waiting for the book and waiting for the book. And I watched your success, and I was uh, delighted to write a forward for one of your books, Dr. Joe. Yes. I felt like maybe, just maybe, I could pull off this one idea for NAMI, and uh, it succeeded beyond my wildest dreams, and I'm probably never going to recover from the fact that it was a gleam in my eye for 15 years, and you know, now I'm traveling America talking to people about mental health with people from the book. They're my experts. So everywhere I go, whether it's Denver or Philadelphia or Seattle, Los Angeles, people in the book are on the stage with me. They all sign the books at the end. It's fun. Hmm. So what, what about this book? Why now, Ken? Why now? Why now is because it was due in May and they printed it now. But why was it due in May and why do they print it now? When COVID happened, I observed my transactions with the media were changing. Pre-COVID, hi, Ken, you're the medical director of NAMI or the chief medical officer, or whatever my title was at the time. There's been a mass shooting. Can we talk about mental illness and murder? And I'm like, dude, 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 can we talk about people getting better? Can we talk about peer support? Can we talk about the role of faith in people's lives? Can we talk? No, no, no. But we'll call you back the next time there's a mass shooting. This was a part of my job I hated. 
COVID happened within six weeks. I'm on CNN. I'm on the BBC. I'm on Stephanie Rule's show. And they're asking me questions. What helps people cope? What helps people get better? How do families contend? If you have a relapse, is teletherapy real? And I thought to myself, this is the moment. If I was ever going to have the courage to try one idea, I contacted the CEO of NAMI, Dan Gillison. I said, Dan, I want to write the book. And he said, go. That was it. That's all I needed was uh, an affirming person to say go. And so the book is out now because multiple publishers bid on the book, recognizing that mental health had become a we thing, not a they thing. I also buried my brother uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, I was at the family gravesite in Cape May, New Jersey. And the man who runs it, uh, I asked him, is there a spot for me here for my ashes? I already lost my sister 12 years ago and my parents, of course. And uh, he said, oh, Ken, you'll be right there between Joe and Sue. And I said, that's exactly where I belong. And I got into the car and I said to Kelly, my wife, I want to write that book because I think it's later than I think. I think it's the third inning. It might be the eighth inning or even the ninth inning. There's a story here. I have a perspective loving someone with all my heart who was very sick and the family that couldn't figure it out. And there's all these families I've met at NAMI who have figured things out. There's all these people who have learned things. And so this is the only book that has been burning inside of me for 15 years. And, you know, now it's available at your local bookstore and libraries have bought 2000 copies across America. It's just too good to be true that it actually worked. It actually worked. But why now as the publisher said, dude, we need it in the fall of 22. So that's, they understood that there was a market opportunity and I'm not against that. Yeah, you are not alone. And we're talking about mental health, not mental illness. We're talking about conditions, not disorders. We're talking about how we come together to help so many people, just as Dr. Duckworth is doing. And Dr. Duckworth, in, um, in You're Not Alone, we're looking a lot at mental health. What about co-occurring? Yeah, co-occurring conditions are common. And truth be told, I feel that NAMI needed to up its game. So I made sure there was a chapter reviewed by you, Dr. Joe, and by Deirdre Calvert, the director of the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services here in Massachusetts. I wanted people to make sure that they appreciated that it's not rare to have both conditions. And it is rare to find a service system that's fully integrated. And I didn't want people to feel that it was their fault if the cultures are clashing because one culture says you are the agent of your addiction. You need to hone all the change. And the other culture said, yeah, there's a brain piece to this. We should do stuff for you. We should give you housing, give you an outreach worker, right? It's a different worldview. And integrating those is happening. I think Massachusetts is improving in this area, but it's easy to get caught between these cultures. I have also been a psychiatrist for a while working with folks with substance use. And I can think of maybe one, maybe two folks who did not have a psychiatric condition as well, whether it predated or postdated, but they Mm -hmm. they run together. Yeah. And uh, this is what people reported to me. It would start out with social anxiety, then lead to alcohol, then to Oxycontin. In one person's story, a person was feeling desperate, you know, after uh, losing a parent, grief, 
you know, the substances changed their state. They were self-medicating. So, you know, I think it's common. And I think we haven't done a great job of letting people know that that's not unusual, that it's yeah. common and that it you is. can make these cultures work. Well, I, I hope so. And really that, that certainly is, is part of my mission is to be sure that people understand that, you know, um, addiction is not a crime. It can lead to them. And one of the crimes that it's led to is we ostracize people with addiction. You know, we basically say, you stay over on your side, mental health stay on their side, and never the twain shall meet. And, and it just it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, it's it's the brain. And one one woman in the book made the point, you know, now that middle class white people are having oxycontin addiction, we have a public health response. Mm-hmm. She, of course, is black. And when my aunt died, it was just another heroin addict. You know, yeah. so it's interesting. I think our position has gone from blame and criminal justice more towards the public health model. But I think it's important to recognize not everyone has experienced it that way. No, no. And and, and it really is in that experience and being able to appreciate what people have to offer that is so important. And it's not about the money, folks. This it's all about love. The people yeah. who do this work, yeah. people interviewed for the book were so beautiful about this. What I went through was catastrophically horrible. I'm telling my story so that some other person has a better experience than I did. I can't believe that my story could help anyone else. I have found that when you open the door, almost always someone else wants to walk through it with you. That's what people told me again and again. I thought to myself, I think we need a national listening project Mm. around mental health. I mean, that's a whole nother idea that I'm playing with because the experience of people participating in this project was that their stories have meaning and value. So this gets to the whole question, who's an expert, right? Obviously, Dr. Joe, you're an expert. No, 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 no. But, you know, I think there's real, but if you also live with bipolar disorder, you have a different kind of expertise. This is the beauty of the book is I'm shining a light on people that we've all forgotten about in the mental health field as experts. If you figured out how to make your family work in the context of your son having schizophrenia and learning to let go and love and not control, that's a kind of expertise. And happily, there's multiple families like that in the book. So to me, broadening the idea of who's an expert was the kernel of the good idea that this book had and people are responding to it. I travel across the country. Like, you mean I have learned something? Yeah. Having three generations of clinical depression? Yes. Yeah. You've learned something. Now, it might be different than the next person has learned. But the idea, we can't leave all that wisdom on the table. Like, let's go. Like, right. let's use that wisdom. I, I absolutely agree. And the only distinction I make is this. is When I'm talking with patients, I say, look, you are the expert. Yes. I am just a professional. You are the most important person in this. You are the only one who can tell me what it's like. Yes. You. But they're not going to tell me if they think they're going to be judged. That's right. Right. And that's that really is the I am. Respect leads to value mm-hmm. and that value leads to trust. So, so Ken, what was this like for you talking with people? How did how did how did Amy find these folks to, to come forward? You know, so I have gray hair, Joe. So right. I know a lot of people. 
<laughs> so I'd give a talk to NAMI Wisconsin randomly. And I'd say, hey, Wisconsin, I'm writing NAMI's first book. You want to tell your story, whatever it is. You have to use your name. Talk to your family about it before you I am, you know, email me. Um, and if you want to be in the book, I'll interview. So I'm gonna say 80 people out of 130 came like that. NAMI, Connecticut, NAMI, Georgia, NAMI, California. I also interviewed the only human being who was left, who was alive for the first NAMI convention. That seemed like a historical moment. A mm. hundred years old, Eleanor has since passed away since I interviewed her. I interviewed everybody who created a program. So you invented family to family, or you invented peer to peer, you invented in our own voice, you invented ending the silence. I interviewed those people. How did you create that program? I also interviewed Mary Ellen Copeland, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Like, I wanted her in the book. I want people to know about this. This is a strategy that works. So uh, a few people were famous people, not have written books, but I'd hear them on NPR and I'd scratch on an index card, interview Diana Chow when write book. Then I'd stick it in my glove box. Then undoubtedly I sold that car and couldn't remember Diane Chow's name. Like this was not a master plan. I heard Lorenzo Lewis on NPR. He's created mental health inside of black barbershops. Interview Lorenzo Lewis. Now, can I find Lorenzo Lewis? I could not. It took me a year to find him. I couldn't find him because I didn't have a systematic approach, but I knew what I wanted to do. So if you've written a book, in general, I didn't feature you in the book. This is a book about every man and every woman, for every man and every woman, regular people, mm. people like my little family, a shift ARD salesman, and, you know, a family that struggled to communicate and problem solve. That's my intended audience. So those are the people that I wanted. And what I found, Dr. Joe, is that you didn't have to rig it, that you could find a person who has no hope that their family member will ever get better. That's a real problem that people face. And okay, there's a lot of happy stories of recovery and transformation. There are people who love someone who aren't responding to the latest and best treatments. How does he cope with that? He copes with that by teaching family to family. And he said, I do this not to make her better. I do this to make myself better for her. It's so beautiful. It's a retired postal worker. And I said, why aren't you golfing? He said, where's the meaning in that? This way, every time I meet with a father who has a child with a mental health condition, I am honoring my daughter. She's not a statistic. Her life matters. And, you know, what can I say? It's a random guy who emailed me from Connecticut, Nami, Connecticut. It's quite beautiful. And what I found was when you talk to about 130 people, you run into the things that people run into. People who were told they would never get better. People who were told that they shouldn't get involved in relationships or should not have children. You know, people who were told their family member would never get better. I also interviewed eight people who lost family members who died by suicide because that's real. How do you make meaning of your life after you lose a child or a sibling or a father? These are real stories. And the point is people do transcend these things and it's not easy. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, wish this upon anyone. The truth is, people have talked to me about this over the years in my career, and I didn't want to only have stories of happy recovery. The book is true. It's 130 real people. It's true. And you can make meaning out of a loss. You can even make meaning from that. 
And some of the people in that chapter absolutely, you know, are mind boggling in how much they transcended this and what they've done after a loss to make meaning of it. So the book was an incredible experience, the greatest experience of my little career. And, uh, you know, I'd done a lot of different jobs. It's the only book I ever wanted on the bookshelf. I wanted a bookshelf for regular people by regular people. And because I lived in an ordinary family, I was the first doctor in my family to go to medical school, first person to go to medical school. And again, I I'm not interested in science or math. I read history for fun, right? That's what I read for fun. I listen to history books. Like I'm still interested in the same things I was interested in high school, but because I like storytelling, right? That's how you see how, you know, I ended up writing this particular book. I'm interested, you know, Churchill's stories and speeches, right? And Kennedy's stories, Profoss and Courage, those are stories. Joe, you might remember uh, Stud Circle. Sure. Uh, people who gray hair um, would remember him. Young people know this project, Humans of New York, which is pictures and photos of actual people in New York. So I build the book as Studs Terkel slash Humans of New York meets mental health. Hmm. That's how that was my one line summary of what this book is, because that's the book I needed. I read Studs Terkel when I was in college. He still stays with me. I still think about the last stonemason, the last guy who works at a piano bar at a motel yeah. that's closing. Like, what is that like? What is that experience? And they were real, ordinary people. So that was the joy of the project. It was it's an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, I wish I could do it again. And I think this is why it's so relatable, the book. And, and folks, it's it's written beautifully. And the stories, you know, are, are incredible. And they're, they're narrative. So it's, it's the real words of these folks. It's not Ken putting words to their story. But then the interpretations as well. Um, Mark, what, what are you thinking about all this? I think it's great. I think I always think shared experience is the best way. Storytelling, teaching through storytelling is always a, an ideal way, at, at least for me to learn mm -hmm. and, to, and to consume. But what I'm, I'm concerned about is, is with COVID, and, and I love the fact that people are talking about this, and they're more willing to discuss it and be open about it. But we're realizing that there are so many people that are suffering, managing, coping, however you want to refer to it. And there's not enough practitioners yep. out there to help. So, you know, what is the future of that? Yeah. So I have two I have three daughters. Two are in medical school and one is happy. Right. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> one of my daughters is going to have 250K of debt. And let's say she chose psychiatry by some miracle. Do you think she's going to want to take inadequate insurance payments? I just, I just illustrate the problem right, right. there. Mm -hmm. So uh, demand is crushing supply, mm -hmm. crushing. So one of my possible solutions, in addition, you need a massive workforce loan program, massive. This would require a massive federal investment because, you know, my kids are rational kids. They're going to want to buy a house and have a baby. With a quarter of a million dollars of debt, it's very difficult mm -hmm. to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, work in community mental health. Oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, work for McPAP, the consultation program. Oh, I'm going to accept insurance payments when people would pay me $150 an hour more to do the same work, the exact same work. You're still helping sick people. So I think one of the solutions, and there are many, you got to up the peer game. 
And Massachusetts is not in the lead on this. Georgia began paying for peers. These are peer specialists. These are people with lived experience who pass the certification and an ethics exam. About 35 states pay for them actively across the board. Uh, this is something that we could add, not to supplant or replace, right? Peers don't prescribe medicines. They don't prescribe treatments. They don't make diagnoses. But they can help you in ways. If I had met somebody who had bipolar disorder and was living successfully, I probably wouldn't have become a psychiatrist. I'd probably be a history teacher, very happy teaching history, you know, 11th grade history. And, you know, to me, I never saw anybody who was like me or my dad. And so a peer resource would have been incredible. So to me, having health plans pay for, formalize, having Medicaid pay for, formalize, peer support. You could also use the practitioner smarter. You could have them do collaborative care where you take care of 5,000 people instead of 50 people a week by coaching primary care doctors and pediatricians. But they don't see people doing that much. It's not a career path. Hey, I want to be like Dr. Joe and write a book. They don't see somebody doing collaborative care who they think is a thought leader. Hey, I want to be like Dr. Joe and be a collaborative care person. So if the practitioners aren't going to be used smarter, you have to bring more people onto the field. Know their limitations, but really bring them yeah, onto the field. Yeah, And they don't replace a social worker. It takes eight years to make a social worker. Right. It takes eight weeks to make a mental health crisis. Yeah. So supply and demand are never going to be in alignment, but we're also like, it is we're not, back. we're not tapping into other kinds of wisdom. Yeah. You are not alone. Why would someone buy this book, doctor? They would buy this book because they want to recognize that there's people like them. I interviewed 130 people, 11 self-identified rape and ethnicities, 25 different faith orientation, 38 different states ages 16 to 100. One woman told me she was old as dirt. So, you know, it's impossible to get her a real uh, reckoning of that. People self-identified. 12 people said they were Black. 12 was African-American. Their experience in the Southern Baptist Church, their experience in the workforce. People said they were Latino. Some people, they said they were Latinx. Some said they were Hispanic. Some identified themselves as religious, some as atheist. The point is, wherever you are in your journey, Whatever diagnosis or process to say, sort your diagnosis you're in, there's people like you. This is why I went so deep and wide on this book. The meta message is I felt incredibly alone visiting my dad at Northville State Hospital in 1979 when I'd been to visit him for the sixth or seventh time in my VW bug. I sat there outside of Detroit and I thought I am the most alone person on earth. Little did I know that the exact same time the National Alliance on Mental Illness was being formed in Madison, Wisconsin by 284 people who joined from across America who said, you know something? We're tired of being blamed for our kids' illness and we're tired of the way society doesn't treat us well. And it started out as a family organization. So it's a beautiful kind of circle in my life that I become the chief medical officer of this group because I know what it's like to feel alone. And that to me so I took Kelly, uh, my uh, now bride, um, about 10 years ago to Northville State Hospital. And I was going to tell you this story because this was really when I realized that being alone was the core experience that I wanted to write about. 
because you don't have to feel alone. So we go to Northville State Hospital. I'm telling her about my dad for the first time. And I start to fill up with tears. And a security guard pulls up in a uh, AMC Pacer, if you can remember the detail of that. Mm. This guy's clearly smoking cigarettes and chilling. And, you know, the whole place is shuttered. Northville State Hospital is closed. All the windows are broken, completely dilapidated. And I'm overcome with tears. And Kelly says to the security guard, we need a minute. We need a minute. It was the greatest thing anybody said to me in my entire life, the word we. And I You're said to her. you right now, Ken. You're getting teary right now. It's a, you know, it was the moment of my life. I can hear and it. I thought to myself, it's the isolation that I felt. So alone. I didn't even have this condition. And the recognition that we need a minute. We had a family member here. And I, th I thought, it didn't have the book in mind, but that solidified this idea that isolation and shame are actually the core problem that I wanted to attend to. And then it took you know me a long time to figure it out, getting real people to say share their names. I tell my own story in the book. It's a 2% of the book. It's a thread through the book. I'm part of this club. This is, this is not about you. This is about us. And so, um, yeah, that was really the, the thing about the book. If you love somebody with a mental health condition, you'll learn people who figure things out. And if you have a mental health condition and don't feel like it's going your way, you'll find somebody just like you. Just really throughout the book. So that was kind of, you know, why I decided to focus on this question. Isolation, shame, the loneliness that comes with this. We live in a society that has not really valued people who live with mental health conditions. There are people, often geniuses, occasionally creative forces for good. They're doing all kinds of amazing things. And I just wanted that to be part of the conversation. You know, we as a species are very invested in value. You know, and we, we need to be part of that group. We need to feel valued. And whenever we feel that we are not valued, yes, activates this primitive survival yes. response. And as soon as that happens, cortisol floods our body. Yeah. And cortisol interferes with dopamine, which is about pleasure, but it also interferes with oxytocin, which is yeah. about trust. So what Ken's book is doing, folks, is giving us all a platform where everyone can trust and value and sharing this. Is there anyone out there, anyone out there who does not know of someone who's had some depression or anxiety or substance use or something on that spectrum of what we call mental health? Every one of you, every one of you. Joe, know I had a person say to me, I never met anybody with a mental health condition. I said, well, read the book anyway, just for fun. <laughs> and they said, my family had been terribly traumatized in the war. There you I go. won't discuss which war or where. And they said, this book transformed my relationship with my family because I realized they had been through trauma. And, you know, I'm part of the third generation receiving the trauma, you know, through a catastrophic war. That's and right. so I only have one person and I've converted that person. Uh, <laughs> just read the book. I'm going to challenge you. You said you don't know anybody in your life, friends or family. Read this book and look yeah. me in the eye and tell me none of this speaks to you. Right. And that was one of my favorite moments on the whole journey. Because mm. like, I do think it's a wide net of the human condition, you know, around mental health and around substance use. Absolutely. You know, 
this Dr. Joe show is based on the I am and, and Ken knows the I am. Ken wrote, look forward to one of my books, Unleashing the Power of Respect, which I'm ever grateful. Um, the I am, because there are four domains, the home domain, the social domain, the biological and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because we respond to these domains, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. Ken, what small change can you recommend to our listeners, given what we're talking about tonight? Consider the possibility that your story might help someone else. This is not an encouragement for everyone to get on Channel 5 and tell their story. You still have to assess your workplace. You still have to assess the people you hang out with. You still have to make an independent assessment. But the idea that secrecy, privacy, and shame are the main choices, they're not the only choices anymore. They're still legitimate choices in some circumstances. So this is not you know, uh, criticizing anyone who isn't talking about their story. Your story matters, and it might help another person. There's that ancient expression, pain shared is pain halved, right? And when you share something you've been through, you will help someone else. It's just really that simple in a way. And so I would say that, just consider the radical idea that your experience of whatever you've lived with in your own life or your own family might have value to someone else. Because that's what I heard over and over and over in the book. And that's what I hear on the book tour. Oh my gosh, that person's just like me. Mm-hmm. I was told at a state hospital they never get better. And I found DBT and it changed my life. Well, Chrissy Barnard is just like you. She lives in rural Wisconsin. You don't live in rural Wisconsin, but you've been told the same thing, right? So to me, that would be the idea. Consider the power that your lived experience might shape another person's way of approaching it. That's wonderful. You know, it is all about that, that gratitude, that sharing, that appreciation. And with the four domains, everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them. And you know, it feels different in your biological domain when you feel respected or disrespected. Yeah. And what this means is you control no one you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Ken Duckworth, author of You Are Not Alone, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, my legacy to NAMI will be we're going to have a series of books. This is an amazing organization that runs all these free programs from FaithNet to Our Own Voice to Family to Family. There's something for the whole family, literally, there. My legacy is that NAMI's going to have a line of books. And when people come to me and they sit next to me on the airplane and they say, what do you do? They're always really sorry because I tell them. And you know, <laughs> once in a while, I run into somebody who says, my God, if I knew about this 10 years ago, it would have saved my marriage. Mm-hmm. Or I would have had a relationship with my son. My goal, my little influence is we have a publisher, an amazing publisher. And uh, NAMI has another book coming that my colleague, Christine Crawford, is going to write. We're going to develop workbooks. These books will be in bookstores and libraries across America. This was a change that I saw I wanted to see happen. There's no reason NAMI should be America's best kept secret. There's just no reason for it. And uh, thanks to this little project and all the support of everyone in it. And I mean, this was an entire team effort. 200 people plus or minus worked on this book, including you, Dr. Joe. And I just want to say, you know, I was the captain of a very big ship. Bye, all. Take care.